This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. We now begin my second presentation following my colleague's pellucidly clear articulation of matters philosophic and theologic, which is refreshing, wonderful. Your students are very fortunate to have you. Um, I'm glad that the president and the dean don't hear you because otherwise they'd probably give you our jobs here. <laughs> so that's good. No, that's what's very wonderful. So what we're going to do now is presuming, and all that he said, of course, is consonant with what I said because we both come uh, from the same principle, uh, God, remotely, ultimately. We're aiming towards the same term, the truth, and we're guided by the same master, St. Thomas. And what I want to do in this session, and as you'll see from the handout there, and for those of you listening uh, through the marvels of technology, you don't need to have the handout. Uh, you can do all this based on what we'll, you'll know what we're doing from the handout based on what I say. But it does help to have the handout because we're going to look at what I aver are the three most important questions. In fact, these are the foundational questions that anyone can ask at any time. But before we do that, just to recall, so we have reality, whether it's a rock, an apple, the Goliath problem, or the Isaac Newton problem, maybe, um, if we want to have another problem with apples. Uh, we have the human person and how reality shapes human cognition and how God and his knowledge, the eternal law, and law here, of course, does not mean something written prescriptively, but it's the law of uh, shaping the forms that, as God knows them, that he imparts to reality. This is the dynamic. Reality is shaped by God. Reality shapes us. When we know reality, our minds conform to how God knows things to be, and so indirectly, we know the mind of God. We think God's thoughts after him. This is according to the order of reason. Because by knowing various things in reality, like the nature of circles, like the nature of rocks, like the nature of apples, I can begin to reason from what I know to what I don't know. Remember the syllogism. And ultimately, as we said last time, reason's term is God. It ends in God. When you reason correctly and accurately, you and I eventually are able to trace the footsteps of causality back to God. And you arrive at him, the first cause, the highest being, at the end. However, the entry into God through reason is an extrinsic, external entry. You arrive like Moses to the threshold of the promised land, but you cannot enter into its intimate depths. You can know and love God and even know that you're supposed to know and love God above all things. You can have God as a natural end properly proportioned to you in your human nature, but that end is not exhaustive of all that the divine is in himself. Because he is infinite, he is ineffable, he is all pure act, all powerful. So only God's invitation 
him opening himself up, him revealing himself to us directly, can enable us to enter into his inner life and being. Because through reason, which can arrive at God's end, we always relate to God in relation to ourselves and to the things he makes. God is understood as the cause of me, as the one who establishes order in reality, as the one whose thoughts I'm thinking after him by knowing reality. But that still, again, places us in an outward landing way to God. And you basically, not basically, found it necessarily, can't break in to the intimate life of God. There's no climbing over that fence, picking that lock. Thankfully, God doesn't invite us to break in, nor does he want us not to enter. He invites us, and that's where now we move to faith, where God opens himself, reveals his secrets, his innermost life and being to us. Things like he is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Things like he sent the eternal word to die on the cross for your sins, for my sins. That he wants us to relate to him, not just as creator to creature, not just as Lord to servant, but as friends. Those are things which come about from God himself, revealing and opening himself up to us. So notice here the trajectory with reason. We start with reality and the dynamic here, and we reason back to God arriving at him at, at the end. Through faith, we start with God, with what he reveals about himself, what he illumines our minds with, the divine truths, the secrets of his intimate life and being that he shares with his friends. And that brings us to what I propose are the three most important questions. And as you recall, I said that my themes that I wanted to explore here, I do want to explore, are the spirituality of faith and reason. And to do that, we will look at how in the sacred text of Scripture, we see different ways of conceiving this is true, whether we believe it or not, whether we know it or not, this is the way things are. And so, how the questions we ask engage those things in different ways. I teach in this classroom, so it's a bad habit, but I was close to here just because I don't want the president sneaking around listening to what I'm teaching. So, it's good. Okay. <laughs> Father Petrie. It's still open? Father Petrie's going to want to listen in still. Okay. Um, this might not be really perfect. There we go. Good. Uh, good. So, you'll notice there's three questions there at the top of your handout. First is Luke 1.18. Second is Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And the third is Luke 1.34. The first question is Zachariah's question. How shall I know? Luke 1.18. The second question is the serpent's question in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, Genesis 3.1, and the third question is Mary's question, the Blessed Virgin Mary's question. How can this be? Luke 1, 34. Just to clarify, Zechariah in the first question is the father of John the Baptist. So, just to set up our entry into these questions. You'll notice, although I have Zechariah's question first and Mary's question last, 
in some ways they go together because Zachariah's question comes about because his wife Elizabeth is elderly. And the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, your wife's going to have a son. And he's going to be very special. And Zachariah asks a question that displeases the angel Gabriel. And remember, he becomes mute. And a few verses later, Gabriel appears, the same angel, appears to the Blessed Virgin Mary and says something very similar. You're going to have a son. And her situation is different. She's not all elderly, but she's a consecrated virgin, so she's not having relations with a man. So she also has a question. And it is initially interesting to us, how is it that Zachariah's question, which is what's going on here, gets him muted, and Mary's question gets her praised? That's a hard thing. It's in the same chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. But if we plug those questions into the order of reality and to the dynamic of knowing and look precisely at what they ask, clarity perhaps arrives. What is Zachariah's question? The angel Gabriel appears. Your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son. And he asks, it's right there on your handout, how shall I know? This question is the foundational question of the modern time. This question is the Enlightenment question. This question says, denies both that reality shapes human cognition, that compared and relative to us, being precedes our knowledge, being shapes our knowledge, and it says, no, my knowledge is primary. I want you to explain, because this is where the game is played in my intellect, how shall I know that what you say is true? And not only do I give priority over reality to my own comprehension, my own cognition, but you're an angel of God. So... I'm also placing my own cognition, my own intellection, above God himself. What Zechariah has done is placed himself, his mind, his understanding, his powers of knowing, his reason, his categories of comprehension and persuasion as the ultimate arbiter of things outside of him, and ultimately, even above, supreme over God himself. For those of you that have studied Enlightenment philosophy, there are many nuances between them, <laughs> among them, but the primary move of the Enlightenment was exactly that question, to place a priority upon human cognition. We've already talked about Descartes. Descartes says, I got to start in my mind in order to get out of my mind. That's a fool's errand. If you start in your mind, you're never going to get out of your mind. How shall I know? Descartes took the negative route. He said, I will doubt things such that I can arrive at an indubitable fact. I think, therefore I am, because I can't not be if I'm doubting. 
But if you know Descartes, even though he tries to get out, we don't have enough time to get into the minutia of philosophy, I recommend the book uh, The Three Reformers by Jacques Maritain. If you want to pursue this further, profound book. I'm not a big Maritain fan, but uh, that book, an early book, is very good. I know Father Teller's like, yeah, he doesn't, yeah. I have a very high standard for books that I, so if I ever tell you that this is a good book, that's a good book. And this is a good book. Jacques Maritain, The Three Reformers. He doesn't do it exactly the way we're doing it, but his presentation of three reformers, it's in English, is excellent. He looks at Descartes, Luther, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Great book. Okay. Immanuel Kant also placed human cognition in primal place, such that the mind comes preloaded with ideas that it imposes upon reality. So reality doesn't shape the mind. The mind shapes reality, or at least the human's engagement with reality. It gets murky, etc., etc. So this is why Zachariah is muted. His silencing was not a penal punishment that came out of the wrath of God kind of around It's like, okay, let me pick what your punishment's going to be. Sit in the corner, um, have your eyebrows burned off, or be quiet. Yeah, we're going to choose the quiet one. Okay, no. <laughs> Literally, what this punishment, this result came about is because he is muted. Because if you don't start outside your mind with reality, you don't have any concepts or knowledge that you can express through speech. You learn to speak. You learn words and signs that reflect your concepts because of your encounter with reality, like the child. Ball, dog, cat, is, is not. And then you begin to put them together. If you start in your mind, you are literally muted because you have nothing proper, native, inherent in your cognition, in your intellect that isn't from outside and ultimately either indirectly from God or directly from God through faith. Contrast this with the Blessed Virgin Mary. She too is presented with a remarkable truth. You will bear a son, which is remarkable on a natural level, but even more remarkable, he will be the son of the Most High. Oh. Mary's question, which sounds initially to the casual reader, to be very similar, if not identical to Zacharias, is essentially different. Because as you see in the handout, what does she ask? She doesn't ask, how shall I know? She asks, how can this be? Mary is grounded in reality. She is a woman, much graced, much wise, informed with gifts of nature, and of grace, she knows that what is outside her is first and primary. That what is outside her, even on the order of normal human cognition, being reality precedes what she knows, and even more so in faith, she knows that the principle and the cause of what is outside her, being and reality, comes first. How shall this be? That's the ultimate contemplative question. 
That's a question, unlike Zacharias, which is a doorway to more questions. That question, how should this be, doesn't end. That's her opening the door and in, in pursuing, beginning, commencing a series of questions because being and the dynamics of being is both beautiful, profound, and variegated. There are different kinds of beings. There are different kinds of causes. There are different kinds of effects. Being is analogical, and there's a principle beyond all contingent created being. And somehow this all fits together. Mary's question is not a solitary question. Those who are open to reality on the level of nature and human reason and on the level of grace and faith ask the open question, how can this be? That's what every child begins asking, and that's what every saint never stops asking. In heaven, in the beatific vision, when you see God face to face, you will be forever, for eternity, pursuing that same question. My Lord and my God, how can this be? How can you be? How can I be with you? Mary's question opens her both on the order of reason and on the, in the order of faith to a never-ending unity with reality outside of her and ultimately with the principle of reality. Again, the contrast of this question was Zachariah's question. Zachariah's question is a shutdown question. How shall I know? What's the shutdown limits? The shutdown limits, the four uh, sides of the square, are himself. How shall I? I will delimit this by my own restrictions, by my own specifications, by my own limitations, by my own fragility or expectations. Zachariah's question and the Enlightenment question neuters cont contemplation, frustrates contemplation, locks you in yourself. If you start in your mind, you never get out of your mind, and you have nothing. But if you begin like Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin, outside your mind, on the order of nature and on the order of grace, all opens to you. Even in the sacred text of scripture, we see the realist's question, how shall this be? And the modern enlightenment question, how shall I know, present. One, which we'll see leads to not muted, uh, mute, mute, mutedness, silence. We'll look at the Magnificat in a second. And one does. Zachariah is silenced because there is nothing that he can say within the bounds of himself. So Zachariah's question, the Enlightenment question, that's bad enough. But there's another question. <clears throat> and it's the question that was asked early on in the Garden of Eden by the Prince of Darkness, the Master of Lies, and quite frankly, it is the question that I propose to you is the question of the modern period. We've moved past the Enlightenment. We're all recovering Cartesians, Kantians, Hegelians. Nay, we're actually way past that. And we're now in 
the darkness of the serpent's question. And what does he say? What does he ask? You know the scenario. Adam and Eve, in the state of original justice, friends with God. The devil appears to Mary under the appearance, or the, uh, Eve under the appearance of a serpent, and asks her a question. He doesn't tell her anything. He knows that the way the mind works is through questions. That's why Aquinas and Summa proceeds according to questions. That's why children ask questions. Questions are the opening to reason and to faith. So the serpent gets in there according to the modality of questions and says, did God really say? What is sinister about that is he doesn't do Zachariah's question. That'd be bad enough. He doesn't ask her, uh, Eve, what do you think God meant? That's bad enough. Because then Eve would be stuck in her head. He's much more precise, much more sinister, much more deadly in his demonic, disordered question because he goes after the principle of all of reality, did God, and the principle of reality, did God really say. What he asks cuts off anything from outside, on the order of nature and on the order of grace. He doesn't just say, you know what, Zachariah, like Zachariah, go into your head. Maybe there's something out there, but we will never know until we're persuaded. Zachariah is open to there being something out here. He just says, you've got to persuade me, get into my box. That's bad enough. The devil comes out and says, no, 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 no. I want you to rethink both God and the reality, and him communicating reality to you. Is there any God? Is there any reality? Is there any union between God as cause of reality and you as knower of reality? The very fact that I'm asking you this also suggests that there's a division here, because I'm not sure that you're sure if there's a connection, not just between God and reality, but between you and reality and God. This cuts off the foundation of everything. In one question, the devil undermines the whole order of things. And this is why Eve, not turning to God, the principle of reality, the content of reality being, but engaging in the devil's dialectic, trying to out-Hegelianize Satan. That's why the problems came <coughs> after uh, her unfortunate encounter with the serpent, who was more shrewd than any other creature. This is where we're at today. Are we stuck in our minds? Yes. But even worse, most of us, don't really believe that there's anything out there. Either a God or a reality, or a God who cares about reality, or a reality that comes from God. All that's left is this separated isolation of us 
who both replaces reality, because this doesn't really exist anymore, so that means we have to make up for it, and God doesn't really exist anymore, so we have to make up for that, because what does the serpent go on to say? He goes, no, no, you won't surely die. God knows that if you do something, if you make your own reality, you will be like God, knowing, knowing good and evil. You will have to be the principle of the eternal law, the order of all things. And Eve looks at the apple, checks it out, says, yeah, I can do this. It's pleasant to eat. There's aspects of goodness there. It'd be nice to set things the way I like it. I wouldn't mind being on God's level. And she falls for the devil's trap. <clears throat> These three questions. How shall I know? Did God really say? And Mary's, where we're going to end, are the three foundational questions. All questions, all big picture questions, all ultimate questions, all the most important questions in the history of philosophy and in theology, quite frankly, can be reduced to one of those three. Mary the realist, Zechariah the enlightenment thinker, and the serpent's demonic question, which, by the way, is where we're at today. Because there is no God, there's no church, priests abuse people, pastors, you can't trust them. There's no sacraments. It's all man-made, man-made. All there are is a bunch of us fighting to be this and this. You're oppressing me because you think you're God over me, but what about my race, my gender, my orientation? That's exactly where we're at. We are living in a moment characterized by the serpent's question. And what is the solution to the serpent's question? Even if we've taken the bite, even if we've fallen, it's not to run to the knowledge of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we is not proportionate to us. Our knowledge, our understanding, our comprehension can't reach that. But rather, there's another tree, as you know, the tree of life. And of course, what is the Christian tradition, Protestant, Catholic? That's the cross. It's Jesus, the second Adam, Mary, the new Eve. Even if you have, and we can do this in the quote, but if you want to talk about the Blessed Mother, you might understand that again, as a person who wondered about these things myself, I'm very contained here being recorded. Uh, you know, marrying things can be a little bit elusive, I understand, but I would propose to you, any Christian believer wants to be imbued with the marrying question. How can this be? Because being opens us up to what God has done, to who God is, and preserves us from this division and from this restriction. And so in the remaining few moments, look at your handout. <laughs> what I have here, for those of you listening via audio miracles on the internet, they have a handout that has verses from Luke chapter 1, verses 41 through 55. 
And this is known as the Magnificat, Mary's song of praise to God when she visits Elizabeth, who is also with child. So it's beautiful. You see Zacharias uh, and Mary's questions coming together. Zachariah eventually regains his ability to talk. I could talk about that for another hour, but we won't do that. So we're just going to look at this. I have certain things highlighted. But with this in the back of your mind, listen to what Mary says when she encounters Elizabeth. So verse 41 through 55. And when Elizabeth, this is from the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which is a more literal translation. The ESV, if some of you prefer that, would also be very similar to this. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she, Elizabeth, exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who, Mary, believed faith outside of herself, from God, knowledge above her, she received. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed are you because you knew this line from God revealing truths that are beyond human comprehension initially, that are beyond human proof uh, discursively, <clears throat> that you believe this because of the one God who is speaking. And then Mary. And by the way, at Vespers tonight, every Vespers, we chant this. Every Catholic priest, monk, friar in the whole world, every day says this. So I encourage you tonight to say this with maybe a, perhaps a new appreciation. Here's what Mary says. And Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Spiritual. Her soul magnifies the Lord. In receiving the word, it is filled with reflecting the glory of God that she's filled with. And my spirit, spiritual, rejoices in God, my Savior. He imparts this to me. I need him. He is the one that defines me, that shapes me, that specifies me. I participate in his identity as Savior. I don't, he doesn't conform to who I am. My center is he, reality, God, outside of myself. I don't say, and ironically, he is in her. But she is related, specified, defined, identified by him. For he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaid. I'm not looking in my own intellect to set up criteria, boundaries. I'm simple, transparent. The lowliness that I am actually enables me to receive all that he has to give because I don't have any false grandeur to try to reach up here directly by myself. And I realize that what reason can know only approximates comes from the outside. I can't reach into the inner life of God. I'm low. So he can raise me up. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. This isn't just for me. 
All generations, when I know the truth, when you know the truth, when you're shaped by the truth, when you encounter the Savior and are specified by him, all people socially, corporally, corporately, spiritually, ecclesiastically, culturally are affected. What Mary's did, what she is, who she represents, what she, her act transformed history. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty, divine causality, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The name and identity, holy beyond, that is primary for Our Lady, for the Blessed Virgin. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength of his arm, divine causality again, and he has scattered, notice the bold highlighted on the handout, the proud in the imagination of their hearts. That's the pride. It's not pride like, oh, you haven't, you haven't yet passed uh, level one and two. You can't jump to level three. It's not that kind of pride. It's the delusional, non-real pride. I can do this with my own imagination, my own creativity. I can save myself. I don't need to go to the tree of life. I can imagine another salvation. It might work for you to have sacraments and confession. It might work for you to be spiritual but not religious. It might work for you to go on a retreat somewhere and to chant random things and to smell incenses of various sorts. Whatever you imagine works. That's the pride. And it's harmful because it blocks the truth, the reality from getting in. Because you, hold, you, you, you cut yourself off. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. Imaginations, you can have very elaborate myths that you live by, organic lifestyles, alternative lifestyles, things that become your God. You can become mighty, you can make a lot of money, you can have a lot of success, people can applaud you. It will come crashing down because it's ultimately just you and emptiness. And exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, those who yearn for something outside themselves. No one is hungry for themselves. They seek what's outside themselves. And the good things that God gives, reality, himself, salvation. And the rich, those that have, again, the imagination, the creativity, he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God is merciful. We've all screwed up. We are all sinners. We are all wretched. We've all dabbled in Zachariah's question. And I suggest most of us have dabbled a little bit with the servant's questions various times in our lives. But God's still real. Even if you don't believe that that's real, he's real. And that reality's out there. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke. Final line. Spoke. This is still real. Communication's there. God can break through the barriers as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his posterity forever. This, dear friends, is the ultimate contemplative prayer. This is a woman who didn't make herself. She's not a little God. She's not a savior in addition to Jesus. But she is someone who lived, asked the right question, how shall this be, lived in that question, and received 
forever and still receives, quite frankly, the answer to that question, which is God himself. So I encourage you to reflect today, including we have one more talk, which I personally also look forward to very much, but reflect as you go back to your daily lives, encounter your friends, your family, decide what to look at on the internet, what not to look at on the internet, what to be associated with, what not to, what to major in, what not to major in. Think about the questions that ultimately govern your life. Because there's only three, I suggest. Zacharias, the serpents, and Mary's. You can try the enlightenment experiment. Even the world has gotten bored with that, we're done. You can move on to the serpents experiment question. That's what we're doing right now. That's on the road to destruction. Or, and it's never too late, you can join Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin Mary, in her question, which is the question of reality, of God, of salvation. How shall this be?